So, so Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 38 through 44. 38 through 44 of Mark chapter 12. Now last week we, we started um, a section that, that I intended to get through the whole thing, so we're going to finish. So the title, pretty unoriginally, is, is Law Keeping Love Part 2. So last week we looked at Law Keeping Love. I tried to be original, come up with a, a title. I couldn't, so I just said, all right, we're going to do part two. So, and, and it is fitting because it's a continuation, and I do think it's helpful to view this passage um, all together. And so last week, when, if you weren't with us, or if you were with us by way of reminder, we saw an interchange between Jesus and a scribe. And in this interaction, Jesus highlights the greatest commandment. And he says the greatest commandment is loving God, and the second like it, loving others. And then the scribe in response says, yeah, you're right, that is the greatest commandment. And then, in fact, that's much more than, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so in this interchange, what we saw, this, this kind of uh, equation that came up was, was that loving God is, is better or is, is more than doing religious things. Okay, that, that's, what the, that's how the scribe interprets it. He said, loving God is better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. So loving God is, is better than doing religious things. And this week's verses are a continuation of that same theme, uh, but instead of defining what, what law-keeping love is, our passage this morning is going to illustrate law-keeping love. And it's going to do it two ways. It's going to show us what law-keeping love doesn't look like, okay? and it doesn't look like just doing religious things. That's the first example we're going to see with the scribes. And in fact, this, this doing religious things that we're going to see actually dishonors God. And the second person we're going to see is a, a poor widow who's, who's doing religious things, but but her doing religious things is, is from a heart of love for God. And so we're going to see two examples of what law-keeping love doesn't look like over here with the scribes and what it does look like with the poor widow. And I think the point of these passages being right, right beside each other is, is the contrast. And we're going to see what, what does it look like to, to live for self, to not love God, not love others, to live for self, versus what does it look like to live a life loving God and loving others, living a life for God's kingdom. And so we're going to see an example not to follow, an example to follow. And there's a contrast. And again, this contrast is a, a, a life lived loving self and a life lived loving God. So, so that's kind of the layout. Well, let's read our passage, Mark chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 38. I'm going to go through the end of the chapter so you can, you can follow along as I read. Mark 12, beginning in verse 38. And in his teaching... He, that is Jesus, said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41, And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Well, let's look. There's two, two pretty, pretty distinct sections, verses 38 through 40. We'll make that our first 
Our first section, the, the warning to beware of the scribes. And then secondly, the, broken down into verses 41 through 44, we see the widow's offering. So that's how the, the text breaks down. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll walk through those two sections. So, so let's begin with, with verses 38 through 40. Beware of the scribes. So the scribes at this time, they, they were experts in handling written documents. And so in, in the context of Israel, the scribes' duties included teaching, interpreting, and regulating the law. So the law of God was, was the focus of the scribes. They were experts of the law. And so when Jesus issues this warning, it's to that group of people, that group of men, the leaders. Now, now remember, we, we can't forget that last week Jesus had a positive interaction with the scribe. Okay, so this isn't true of all scribes. This warning does not, does not stretch to, to every single scribe, but it's certainly true, and this warning is against most of the scribes. Okay, th- this was their reputation. And so he warns against the scribes, and he singles out six things that, that characterize the scribes. So first, look there in verse 38. The first thing is they, they like to walk around in long robes. Second, they like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues, verse 39, verse 39, they have places of honor at the feast. Then verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And then for pretense, they make long prayers. So those are the six charges that I see Jesus laying out against them. Now, I don't have to go into specifics. We're going we're to address all six of those briefly. But we don't have to go into detail to know what Jesus is saying and what the issue is with these scribes. In a word, the, the theme that runs, runs through all of these is, is pride. They're characterized by pride. They, they like to be distinct. They like to be recognized. They want to be known and respected by everyone. They want to be admired and, and envied by others. They, they don't really care about God, what he thinks of them. They, they care about what others think about them. They want to be singled out. They want to be revered, respected. You could almost say that these scribes want to be worshipped, which at the end of the day, they place themselves in the position that only God deserves. Right? So they want the honor, the glory, and the power. It's all about them. It's, it's me and my kingdom. They're living for themselves. And so that's the issue with the scribes. Now, now let's just run through these, these six charges. They're wearing long robes. So these would have been long, flowing white robes. Kind of like if you think about the, the, the Catholic priest. There's these distinct, this, this garment that, that marks them off. They're, they're, they're set apart. They're religious Leaders, I thought about the, the freshman on the football team. I said, a freshman makes the football team. He never plays, but he gets a jersey, and he wears it all the time. Every day he wears the jersey. People are like, it's summertime, dude. It's not even football season. I don't care. I'm on the team. Right? He wants people to know I'm on the football team. Right? So I think that's a similar dynamic at work here. These robes, these, these scribes, they want everyone to know who they are and what they do because it's, it's, it's important. They were... They were, they were important. They were symbols of, these robes would have been symbols of, of prominence, of standing, of wealth. And so I liked wearing them because people saw them and thought, wow, look at the scribes. Now one thing to note in, in these, the, the wearing of robes and in the, the, the greetings in the marketplace, Mark records that they liked them. There's this, there's this enjoyment they like. They love these things. He, he's, Jesus is making clear there's an unfitting enjoyment that came from their being recognized. They, they liked it. They, they reveled in it. It's not the mere wearing of the garments that was the issue. Right? That's not the issue that Jesus has with them. It's they liked wearing these things. So they, they have the robes. They have the greetings in the marketplace. 
which is something that, that, that's a, a bit lost on us in our, in our culture. But when two people, when you're in the marketplace and two people are meeting, there's this, there's this cultural understanding that the more significant person okay, has to be addressed by the less significant person. So, so if you're the less significant, you initiate the greeting. Right? That, that's just the expectation. So I'm walking by and, and there's, um, I, I don't know how this would relate, but, but say another pastor of a bigger church well, well, he's more important than me, so I need to address him and say, oh, sir, pastor, how are you? There's just this expectation that the lesser greets, initiates the, the more significant. And they use terms like rabbi or, or teacher or master. And so these scribes, they liked being greeted like this. They liked walking by and, and staring at people until they, they offered them this greeting of, oh, rabbi, master, teacher. Again, Jesus isn't saying anything here about the use of these greetings, though we, we would recognize that Jesus tells his followers to take the lowest position, right? that's what he would say, that don't, don't take the highest seat, pursue the lowest, take the lowest. Right? But he's not taking issue with the titles themselves, at least here he's not. He's simply saying that these scribes, they liked it. They love being greeted and, and being deferred to. And so these next charges are along the same lines. They had the best seats in the synagogues, and the best seats are the places of honor at the feasts. Whether it was at the synagogues or at the feasts, the scribes always had the best seats. They were shown honor by the seats that they sat in. So all the, all the commentaries agree that these seats, at least in the synagogue, they were the seats in the front, kind of like these chairs right here, facing out, looking at everyone, so that not, not that they could see everyone, but that everyone could see them who was seated in the seats of honor. And so if a scribe, if we're in, in, in this time and a scribe was visiting our church today, he would be seated right here. In fact, he would almost probably, certainly, almost certainly demand to be seated up here and be offended if he wasn't seated in this seat. I was reminded of the time that I went to the Democratic Republic of Congo a, a few years ago. And so on a Sunday, we're there, and we have a team of maybe 10 people, and we, our team split up into, into teams of smaller groups of two, and we went out to all the churches. These are just small villages that have churches. And so we all go out, and in every church, now, now, now when, when I say church, let me, let me tell you what that means. That means like a, a, a dirt floor, right, tin roof. Sometimes there's, there's, there's walls, but sometimes not. And then there's these makeshift benches of, of logs or, or stumps. Or, so that's the church. When I say church, that's what it is. But in every church, there were these two white plastic chairs, like the ones at the local pool, right? these, and they were sitting right in this position. And so our, our whole team, when we got there, no matter how much we refused, the church leader said, no, you will sit here. Right? That was their place of honor. And we were, we were Americans that were visiting them. We'd come all the way to see them. So they said, we're going to honor you by making you sit in that chair. And so, so we were their honored guests. But unlike us, I can say as a somewhat embarrassed American being forced to sit there, I'd much rather sit on the ground in the back. But unlike these somewhat embarrassed experience that I had, these scribes loved being shown the seat of honor. They, they had to sit there. And so the same went for feasts. They, they wanted to be recognized, set apart. They loved being shown deference. They loved being shown honor. Quite simply, they loved being loved by others. And so that's the scribes. And so instead of understanding the point of the law, right? These are experts in law. Instead of understanding the point of the law and, and loving God above all else, these scribes loved themselves. Even in place of God. They would rather be honored and worshipped instead of God himself. They were committed not to the kingdom of God, but to the kingdom of self. And so these scribes clearly had missed the first commandment, completely missed the first commandment to love God. 
But notice in, in verse 40, the, the fifth charge, I, I'd say it gets worse. Verse 40, Jesus continues, they devour widows' houses. Devour widows' houses. Just the phrasing itself, you know, that, that's not a good thing. Right? When, when you read all the commentaries, no one knows exactly what this means. There's lots of guesses. But you don't have to know exactly what it means to recognize this isn't a good thing. I mean, they devour widows' houses. One commentator said that, that they, they, this means that they sponged on the hospitality of people with limited means. Or another said it, it means that they preyed upon needy widows. Or they compounded their religious hypocrisy by actions towards widows that revealed a total disregard of the commandment to love one's neighbor. So they had no regard for the poor and the widows. So even this use of the word devoured creates a picture that's anything but, but decent. So he describes they, they took advantage of the widows. Now I, I thought about another example that I thought about was the numerous pleas that I've heard from, from TBN televangelists. So I, I, I wouldn't encourage you to watch that often, but, but, but I, I've seen numerous times where, where you see people on the television asking for money Saying that this is our drive, our, our pledge drive, send money, and they're making these outlandish promises. Things like, just trust God's economy of giving. Just send your money and you will see the riches. Just make the checks payable too. Send it here and, and you're going to reap 10, 20, 1,000 times over. Just send me money and God's economy of giving is he's going to bless those who give. Right? That, that's, that's taking advantage of those. So, so I, would, I would venture to say that the vast majority of those who send checks shouldn't be sending checks to those men. They're, they're being taken advantage of. They're being sold a bill of goods. We have wolves in sheep's clothing saying, yeah, send me money. And these people are out of, out of money for food. And these people are flying jets all over the world, staying in, in world first class resorts. That, that's not, it's not good. And so I think, I think that's akin to what's going on here with the scribes. They're robbing the widows' homes, taking advantage of the vulnerable, most likely using their authority, their religious standing, to take advantage of these widows, the ones that they're actually supposed to care for and protect. It's not a good picture, these scribes. And then lastly, for pretense, they make long prayers. So in order to cover up their, their ungodly behavior, lest anyone doubt, well, do you really know what you're talking about? Your, your life doesn't seem to measure up to this law that you're an expert of, in order to convince others of their true godliness, they, they just pray long prayers. If I talk long enough, people will forget about my, my life. Right? So, so all of these things, in light of all these charges, Jesus, at the end of this section, declares the verdict. He said, they will receive greater condemnation. There will be no light sentence passed upon these evil men, these religious leaders who were all show who took advantage of the needy and the poor, who used their religious standing to bully others and to gain the respect and deference of others. Jesus clearly issues this warning to, not, to, to show that these scribes are not to be followed. Beware of the scribes, he says. Beware of these scribes. Well, before we move on to our next, our next point, let me, let me make, a, make, a, make a point here that, that helps us interpret the, this next section in light of the one we've just read. Because the greater condemnation here, I think that helps us accurately read the following passage. Because here's, here's what happens. Some people, they read the, the widow's might or the widow's offering that we're about to cover. They read that and they say that that's not an, the widow is not an example to follow. Rather, they say that is just an example of these scribes taking advantage of widows. So they say, they say this, 
this widow's mite is not an example to follow, but an illustration of how bad the scribes actually were. So they say when this widow gives all that she had, that's just showing that the scribes had deceived her and devoured her home. So I don't see an example to follow there. I, I think that's wrong. I think there is an example. They would say that this widow shouldn't have given any money to the offering. This corrupt temple system, why in the world was she giving money to them? It's her fault. Her giving to the temple is useless because of the nature of the temple. They say she should have just turned around and, and followed Jesus. Right? I, I don't think that's right. I don't think we blame the widow. In fact, I think that this greater condemnation shows that, that even if you want to say this widow is, is, is being taken advantage of and, and that, that there, there's an illustration of the corruption of the scribes in her giving, right? even if that's what you want to say, it's not her fault, it's the scribes' fault. And it's, that's, I'd say, one of the reasons they're going to face greater condemnation. Even though the offering of this widow goes to support a seemingly corrupt temple system, the blame doesn't fall on her. I don't think she could have known better. These scribes, these, these temple leaders, had the trust of the people, the Jewish people, the, the poor needy, the widows trusted the temple leaders. I mean, these were experts in the law. These were the people who knew God. If they couldn't be trusted, who could? And so this widow's willingness to give is not a knock on her. It's a knock on the people who, who abuse the giving. And it is further proof of the corruption and deception of the scribes and, and the other temple leaders. But it's not her fault. I think that's a misreading of, of the text to say she shouldn't have given. And I think Jesus is showing her as an example. We'll see that in a second. Well, before we move on to the last section, let me make a few points of application from, from this first passage. First, I think we see a responsibility of religious leaders. And there's a responsibility of religious leaders. I understand this primarily for, for Kevin and I. Um, but, but, and for those who are, who are in the highest levels of leadership in the church, an application for us, for, for all pastors, I say, is to simply evaluate how am I using my God-given responsibility? Right? The scribes were misusing their responsibility. And so we, I would do well, Kevin, we would do well to, to ask ourselves, how are we using the responsibility that God's given us? I mean, there's temptations within religious leadership today, just like back then, to use ministry, to, to use this, this standing as a, as a stool, as a, a pedestal for self. Am I taking advantage of the office that I hold? Am I taking advantage of the trust that people implicitly place in me? Am I using my ministry for a pedestal for, for me and my kingdom? Is it about me? Am I like the scribes here? That's a question that, that I ought to consider. And in a broader sense, though, though we're, we're not all pastors here, in a broader sense, there's an application for all of us. And that, that application is, is how do you relate to people around you? Situations and circumstances. A question I ask is, is when, when does pride drive? When, when is your pride driving you in your interactions? We saw the scribes, they like to be shown deference. They like, they like people admiring them and, and looking at them. They like being made much of. And we ought to ask ourselves, are there times that I'm like the scribes? Are there times that I like my... Myself to be puffed up and inflated? Are there situations in my life where where my pride is is driving me, motivating what I'm doing, how I'm acting, what I'm saying? Do I relate to certain people? Maybe a certain type of person, full of myself. Are there some people I see and I think, poor people, looking down on them as if you're more deserving or, 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 or better? Do I, do I do certain things only when others are watching? Oh, they're watching. I better make sure they see me do this. We, we ought to ask ourselves these questions. 
Human pride is a real thing, right? And it drives more often than it ought in the lives of Christians, in my life, in your life. So we ought to work hard to identify when pride drives. Because in those times where, where our pride is driving, motivating, those times where our pride is on display there, in those times, I'm living for my own kingdom. I'm not living for God's kingdom. So we ought to ask ourselves, when, where, where are times, when are times that pride drives? Well, well, having seen these issues with the scribes and their failure to love God and others, we, we now turn to verses 41 through 44, and we see a positive example. So let's look at the, the widow's example, verses 41 through 44. And so here in this scene, Mark records that Jesus sits down in the temple. Now, now to kind of help, help set the scene, what, how this was set up was there's this, this wall, and in this room, in, in, this, in this treasury place, okay, there would have been 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles or, or boxes or chests, 13 of them that line the wall. And so Jesus sits opposite that wall and just watches people. And so into all these, thir- these 13 different uh, trumpet-shaped or shofar-shaped receptacles, the people would drop their coins. And, and all 13 of them were labeled for different types of offering. And so they'd go and they'd put in, maybe someone put one in every single one. Right? But, but that's how it's set up. And so Jesus sits down and he watches people putting money into the boxes. Now notice at the end of verse 41, Mark notes that, that many rich people put large sums in the boxes. Now you may ask, well, well how do you know it's a large sum? Right? How, how do you know? Well, these, these, are, these are metal boxes and, and we have metal coins. So you hear... Right, so you hear, oh my goodness, that, that change is still rattling. Listen to how much that person's giving. So everyone would have known how much you're giving because of the sound that it would have made. It's a loud endeavor. And so it's not clear why Jesus, what he was looking for, or why he was watching, but there he is watching person after person. Maybe there's a line. Maybe it's just kind of this slow coming and going. Person after person, Jesus is watching. And then in verse 42... He sees a poor widow come and put in two small copper coins, amounting to only a penny, Mark says, which in all actuality, when, when you try and do these conversions, it's probably less than a penny. It's, it's a minimal amount. And she comes, and she puts her coins in, and when Jesus sees her, now remember, he's watched people go and go and go, but he sees her, he sees something worth pointing out. And so he calls his disciples, he says, guys, come over here. Come, I've got to show you this. You've got to see this. Come. And he says to them, truly I say to you, verily I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box. This woman, Jesus says, has given, has outgiven every other person that's come to this treasury today. She, that one right there, you see her? She's given more. Now, we're left simply at that. If, if that's all that Jesus had said, we, we would be left a little confused, wouldn't we? And we may even say, well, that's wrong. That is just plain wrong. She hasn't put in more than all those who are contributing. I mean, by this world's thinking, the pronouncement that this widow gave more than all the rich contributed is simply wrong. To the average person watching what's going on, this woman hasn't given more. Instead, quite clearly, she's probably given the least. She's probably given the least. And so the average person, though they're probably appreciating her gesture, would probably just say, well, bless her little heart. Bless her heart. She sure did try and make a difference. She sure did try, assuming, well, what, what good are those two little copper coins? And that's the average person watching. That's, that's probably what we would walk away thinking. But Jesus isn't an average person watching. 
He doesn't stop there. So he says, she's given more. Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Verse 44, he continues, for, for, here's why I said that, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So do you see? Do you see the, the equation, the, the mathematics? She gave more than everyone else, Jesus says, not because the amount of her offering was higher. That's not what he's saying. That's not why it's more. But because what she gave was everything that she had. She gave everything. Right? It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an equation of proportions. Right? 100% of her livelihood was placed in that box. 100%. So although what she had was very minimal, she gave out of her poverty and she gave proportionally more than everyone else who had been in the temple that day. I'm not a math, I'm not good at math. Let's just put it that way. But I recognize that 100% of two coins is greater than 10% of two million coins. Do you see that? 100% of two coins is proportionally more than 10% of two billion coins. Pick the number, it's more. 100% is always going to be more. This widow's offering cost her more than any other offering cost anyone else that day. I mean, they gave it out of their abundance. Their giving didn't jeopardize any of their plans. Their their giving didn't stretch them. Their giving was simply a drop in the bucket. But this widow, she gave out of her poverty. She didn't have, and she gave. Her giving wasn't a drop in the bucket. It was the entire kitchen sink. From God's perspective, which we would say is the only perspective that truly matters, this woman gave more than anyone. And so I don't think there's any doubt that this this poor widow is being held forth by Jesus as an example. I mean, she's contrasted with the wealthy. He says, look at her. She gave more. Now, now he doesn't say you should be like her. He doesn't say she did better, but that's implied, isn't it? Look at her, disciples. She gave more. She's an example because this takes place right after the warnings against the scribes who are self-focused and pride-filled. Here's someone who that's not true of. She's a breath of fresh air, a a contrasting example. And she's an example because she illustrates what what it looks like to love God completely, like we talked about last week. This whole section of Mark has been loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, here's an example of what that looks like. Let me close with a, a few points of application. First, Christian giving is never about the amount and always about the cost. Christian giving is never about the amount and always about the cost. Do you see that distinction, amount and cost? It's never about the amount, always about the cost. If the issue was amount, Jesus would not have singled out this widow as having given the most. And if it were about amount, he'd say, well, this person gave the most. Whoever put the most money in, it's not about amount. God cares not about the money, but about the giver's heart. It's never about amount, it's about cost. I mean, think about it this way. It's not about the amount. God has never experienced financial need. Did you know that? God has never experienced financial need. God can do a lot with a little, or he can choose to do a little with a lot. It's not about amount. He owns everything, right? It's all his in the first place. We're simply stewards. And so our giving, it's more about us than about anything else, about our heart behind the giving. Maybe you heard the quote that the the heart strings are attached to the purse strings. That goes for you men, even if you don't carry purses. You know, you get the point. 
right? Our heart strings are attached to, to where our money goes. And think about it, every time you, you, you swipe a credit card or, or, or click an order button, think about a heart string attached to that, right? What are your heart strings attached to? And so we ought to ask ourselves just simply, is my giving sacrificial? Is my giving costly? I think that's the point. It's about cost. Is my giving costly? And while this passage is about financial giving, let's not forget that we're to give other things. It's not just about finances. Christianity is not just about giving money. That's actually a small percentage of what it's about. It's about time, giving our time, our, our convenience, our relationships. It's about giving of ourselves. And so I'd ask, is your giving costly? Remember, every aspect of our lives is to be given, spent, in love for God and love for others. And that's why we exist. That's why we have relationships. That's why we have jobs. That's why we have money. Right? To love God and love others. We're to steward all that we get for those purposes. We're to live for Him and not for ourselves. And it's true, our finances are sometimes the most difficult thing to love God with. Right? But that's what we're called to do to give sacrificially. So let us learn from this poor widow. But second application, God sees your giving. God sees your giving. Now this is, this is meant to be encouraging. Now some of you when you hear that, maybe you're not encouraged. Maybe you're convicted. Right? Well let it convict you if that convicts you. God sees your giving. But my point is simply to say that, that God sees your giving and, and knows your heart. I mean imagine Imagine yourself in the shoes of that, of that poor widow going to the temple. Maybe she's waiting in line. Maybe she, she got there late and she's at the end of the line. And so she sees, maybe at first she doesn't even see what's going on, but she hears all this money going into these, into these boxes. And she sees person after person. And she gets closer, she says, oh my goodness, are, that whole bag is going there? You have two bags that you're giving? I mean, imagine her thinking, her, her doubt, well, maybe I should just go home. Why am I here? I have these two little coins. And those in front of me, those behind me, they have, they have much more than me. Why would I even do this? Can, can my two coins make a difference? What do I have to offer? My point is simply that Jesus commends her. He sees her giving. She gives more, he tells the disciples. He sees her and he knows her heart. She has no reason to be ashamed. She has no reason to feel less significant than anyone else who gave that day. Through her giving, she loved God. Didn't she? I'm going to give all that I have for this temple and the God that this temple is for. I'm going to give it all. She loved God. She was committed to his kingdom over her own, not knowing what was coming next for her. That didn't even enter into her equation. I'm going to give all. So she's an example, and we can be encouraged. God saw her giving. And then lastly, last application as we close. Humility ought to mark the follower of Christ. Humility ought to mark the follower of Christ. Humility is the mark of a disciple. I'd say the primary mark, love and humility. I mean, in these two passages, the scribes are the first type of people we see, and they love themselves, and they were proud. Right? They are proud people. And then the second person we encounter is the widow who loved God and whose sacrificial giving evidence, I'd say, her humility. So we have a proud person and a humble person. And we ought to follow the humble person. I'd argue that keeping the greatest commandment which is loving God and loving others, necessitates humility. If you want to keep, you want to love God and love others, you're going to be a humble person. In other words, when, when you see pride at work in your life, you're failing to love God and others as you ought, no matter what the situation. If you see pride, you're not loving God and others as you ought in that situation. 
Because when I'm loving God with all that I am, when I'm pouring myself out for the good of others, where is there room for self-love? If, I, if my, if my all-consuming passion is to love God and love others, I don't have time to love myself. There's no place for self-love. And so as we follow Christ, we, we ought to be characterized by humility. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we ought to be humble people. We ought to be humble people. This was the example left for us by the poor widow, and this was the example left for us by Christ himself. Well, let's pray as we close.